Hey there, this is the Evolution Sermon Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that our message makes your week a bit more awesome. See you in church. So my message is called Doing Good. So before you think that doing good is about some lofty idea of going to Africa to build orphanages or being a social justice advocate with 10,000 followers on Instagram, yeah, that is just maybe one aspect of it. But today I want to define it simply as doing good is showing kindness to another human. And this is something that we are all capable of whether it's helping to tutor your classmate who is weak in a particular subject that you are good at, or volunteering at a non-profit organization like Food Bank, Willing Hearts, or perhaps donating to a social cause. For example, you guys gave so generously to the Giving Tree Project last year, so give yourself a clap. So that goes to show we are all capable of doing good. And I want to explore what doing good looks like to Jesus. So our passage for today is Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, the CEV version. So turn your Bible with me. So verse 1, it says, Be careful that you don't practice your religion in front of people to draw their attention. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Whenever you give to the poor, Don't blow your trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets so that they may get praise from people. I assure you that's the only reward they will get. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you may give to the poor in secret. Your father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. So when I first read this passage, I was thinking to myself, Hmm, what is Jesus really getting at here? Does it mean when I give to someone in need, I'm not supposed to share about it at all? That means no telling my friends, you know, not posting about it on social media. Or when I give with my right hand, I'm supposed to hide it from my left hand. You see, on the surface, it looks like Jesus is telling us when you do a good deed, keep it a secret. Hmm. But after pondering for a while, what I think Jesus was really getting at here is the motivation behind our giving. It's our motivation to do good, driven by self-interest. For example, doing charity in order to be noticed and receive praise from people. Or are we genuinely having the best interest of the person that we are helping? So we're going to unpack this short passage together and I'm going to give you three thoughts to guide the way we do good, so that it can help us to reflect and ask ourselves if we are really doing good with the right motives. So first point, doing good goes beyond feeling good. Matthew 6.2, it says, Whenever you give to the poor, don't blow your trumpet, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that they may get praise from people. I assure you, that's the only reward they'll get. I really love Jesus. He is so straightforward. You see, some or many of his listeners, they were giving to the poor because they wanted to boast about it and get praise from others. You see, back in Jesus' day, 
there was a certain culture surrounding giving. For one, there wasn't a robust culture of giving to the poor or those in need. In fact, in our Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament, it is filled with instances where God teaches us to remember the poor. We are called to do this in our individual lives, but also in how we use the money we give to the temple. But by Jesus' time, the second was pretty much non-existent. And giving to the poor has become relegated to something you did it in your own personal life. And most of the religious culture didn't really emphasize on that. Instead, a culture has started to grow around giving big donations to the local synagogues. In fact, it was a common practice for commemorative statues to be set up in synagogues to recognize those who gave large donations to temple. And when the synagogue members were the highest givers, they were given the seat of honor next to the chief rabbi during public gatherings. I can only imagine that this must have created a culture where people were not genuinely interested in the poor. And instead, they were interested in gaining recognition. So fast forward to our world today, not much has changed about human nature. Did you know in 2014, the word humble brag was added to the Oxford Online Dictionary? I guess that the behaviour had become so common in our culture that it was time it got added to our dictionary. So humble brag basically means a modest or self-deprecating statement whose actual purpose is to draw attention to something of which one is proud of. So a typical example of a humble brag would be telling people what a wonderful person you are without coming right out to say it. For example, tweeting or posting on Instagram and saying, hey, look, I just did something really selfless. But most importantly, it was genuine and I know it means so much to the person. Hashtag, so worth it. Sounds familiar? You see, for some of us, doing good can become some sort of badge of honour. Social justice has increasingly become a part of social media culture. And so, our personal social media platform has become a space for us to showcase our good works. I want to caveat here by saying that posting or sharing about the good deed you've done can be a good thing. It can be helpful when done right especially when it helps to raise awareness about an issue in society that often goes off the radar on mainstream media. It can be helpful in that it creates a culture where doing good becomes the norm instead of the exception. But our doing good, being kind and generous, it has to be more than a badge of honour or something to brag about. The motivation behind it cannot just be about wanting to fit in, to look cool, to be trendy. Because social justice is not a trendy thing. It is a value system you commit to. A lifestyle, a way of doing life the way Jesus did that we are convicted about. So now I know you're thinking to yourself that I'm only addressing the Gen Zs in the room. And I want you to know one thing to be recognized is a timeless human issue. It just looks different in different generations. 
So even when social media wasn't the thing, we humans always find other ways to showcase our good works. For example, having our names on buildings. So if you are really rich, you can make a big donation so that your name can go on a building. Or if you're not so rich, perhaps you can donate to have your name on a park bench. You know, sometimes we think when Jesus said these verses, he was only addressing the rich. But this passage, if you read again, it doesn't specify who Jesus was talking to in his audience. It could have been a rich man who had statues of himself in the temple, or it could be the religious leader who made sure everyone would know or see him giving his tithes and offerings. But majority of Jesus' listeners were also the poor and those living with a below-average income. Just as having a generous spirit has nothing to do with our economic situation, giving out of wanting to be recognized is something that we can all have an issue with. Whether we are a working adult with a paycheck or a youth with not much allowance, money is not the only way to do good works. And when we do good works, we can easily do it out of our pride and ego. Because, come on, it feels good when people talk about us, right? It feels good when people praise us. And sometimes, you know, when we see our friend getting praised for giving and doing good, we also want it too. But when we do that, friend, our focus is not benefiting the people who we are supposedly doing good to. The focus becomes benefiting ourselves. And that distinction matters to Jesus. Our motives and focus for doing good is important to Him. Now, there's another way in which our giving can come out of wrong motives. And this one is just slightly a bit more problematic and it's called the Saviour Complex. So it may sound like a positive term, but do you know that a famous example of a leader with Saviour Complex was actually Adolf Hitler? And I want to introduce you to a new term and it's called White Saviour Industrial Complex. So this term was coined in 2012 by a Nigerian-American novelist called Teju Ko. And you may be thinking to yourself right now, what does a white privileged term have to do with me, a Singaporean? Well, some. The white saviour industrial complex is meant to describe a pattern of exploitation and charity work that takes place between the white Americans and the poorer third world nations. For example, the United States, they will invade and occupy a third world nation during which they will exploit the nation in order to gain benefits for themselves. From unequal trade agreements to paying the poor poor wages, they do all this in order to make greater profits for themselves. And this often leads to a situation of poverty and corruption in this occupied nation. And then, in order to feel good about the poverty they've caused, sounds ironic, right? White charities go in as saviour. 
They talk about places like Africa and Haiti and the Middle East as places of terrible chaos, poverty, and how it's so important that we need to go in right now and save the situation. But more than often, failing to acknowledge that they had helped to create the problem in the first place. You see, savior complex is not just an attitude of our hearts. It can become a pattern of behavior that privileged people have as a society. This term may have come out of the relationship between the Americans and third world nations, but the pattern is alive and well in all spaces where our privilege and majority power goes unchecked. Even here in Singapore, where we are part of the problem and we even create the problem. But then, again, we paint ourselves as saviour and we go, oh no, you know, if not for us, these migrant workers, they would not have a job. They should be thankful to us. You know, we are doing them a favour. They wouldn't be able to get as paid as much if they were to return to their hometown. Very ugly, right? Yet some of that may be true, money and numbers-wise, but it doesn't change the fact that the focus becomes us and not those who are in need. And if you think about it, really, we are not much different from those who brag or want their names on buildings, right? Because when the focus is us and not those in need, we are not truly doing good. We are just making ourselves feel better because we did something wrong. And we end up perpetuating harm or sometimes even aggravating the harm because we are too caught up with this idea of us saving the world instead of the poor being our friends, our fellow siblings in this world. So doing good is more than just feeling good. It is about being good to and being good with people. Real doing good can't be done from a distance. I know we can't always be with people physically, even though that is the ideal, but real, genuine, showing kindness to people, it comes out the best by being with people. When people are your friends, not just your charity work or a number, when the people you are giving to are also the same people you are actively listening to and learning from, not just trying to teach them or tell them to do something. Because if you are doing the second thing, then we have easily become another colonialist or privileged majority. So let's bring it closer to home, all right? So recently we had the Giving Tree and the FDW, FTW event, right? And we all felt great. There's this sense of accomplishment and you know, that's not a bad thing. But beyond that, the COW team, we constantly question our motives behind why we do the event. Is it just for show or are we truly trying to be of help to the foreign workers in Singapore? So for the recent COW event, there were two things we did to make sure that we weren't going in with the saviour mentality. So the first thing we did was to make a subtle change to our language 
like using the word befriender instead of volunteer. The thing about volunteer is that it sort of creates a false power dynamic between us and the FDWs, where the benefactor, which is us, who are the privileged ones, we are going in to help the beneficiaries, who are the FDWs and the less privileged ones. And this kind of reinforces the idea of, hey, I'm here to save you. I'm more superior than you. But when we use the word befriender instead, it helps to level the playing field. Where it's no longer just one party giving to the other party, but there's a mutual exchange where we can learn from each other. And the second thing that we did during the COW event was that we took the time to educate everyone about the cultural sensitivities or problems the FDWs faced. I gotta say, it's really not comfortable at all hearing all their problems because if we really want to be honest about it, we Singaporeans are actually the cause of their problems. We are the ones that are denying them of their off days, discriminating against them. While we are out there making money, building our career, they are the ones that are taking care of our family, our children leaving behind their own children and family, leaving behind their own dreams and aspirations. So we Singaporeans really benefit at the expense of all these FDWs. So really, are we the one trying to help them or are they the ones we should feel indebted to? And all that being said, you know, we are just in the infancy stages of restarting COW. And our goal must be to establish real friendships with people as much as possible. We are not there yet, but that must be our aim. So again, I'm not trying to dismiss that you and I, we should stop doing good, all right? It is important to feel rewarded, fulfilled. Emotions are not a bad thing. But perhaps, you know, when we post about our good deeds or head overseas to do charity work, we should ask ourselves a deeper question about our motives and keep on taking steps towards greater equality to the people we are reaching out to. So doing good must go beyond feeling good. Next, doing good shouldn't be calculative. Matthew 6, 3-4, it says, But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you may give to the poor in secret. Your father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. So I'm going to stretch this interpretation of the verse a little bit, alright? So obviously verse 3 and 4 is a build on what Jesus said earlier, which is don't give in order to be recognized. But the expression here don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing was also a household saying back in Jesus' day. It was meant to mean that your benevolence, your charity, your generosity is meant to be known by God alone and rewarded by God alone. Now again, don't start going, oh, so Regina, this is what I should do. I should give so God will reward me. 
That is not the point I'm trying to bring across, all right? The point is we shouldn't be looking to people to be rewarded for our generosity. So here's how this verse speaks to me instead. Oftentimes, we give expecting some sort of payback. Again, I'm not saying relationships shouldn't be reciprocal. I believe if relationships are not two-way, very often they can become ungrateful, exploitative, even abusive. But what I'm saying here is sometimes, sometimes, when we give, we want people to profusely thank us. We want people to profusely acknowledge us. We want them to perhaps one day pay back the favour. Friend, that is not making room for reciprocity. That is false obligation. You know, for example, have you had a friend who will keep a tap of all the gifts that he has given to you? And then when it's your birthday, he will expect you to buy him back a present of the same value. You know, and he goes to you and say, Hey, friend, you know what tomorrow is? It's my birthday. Do you remember I bought you a pair of AirPods last month? And your friend immediately feels obligated to have to get you something for your birthday. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Or for some of us, we give with strings attached. Some rich people would donate millions of dollars to prestigious universities, and in return, they expect that by doing so, it would increase the chance of their children entering the school. In fact, in Singapore, I've heard of parents who would join grassroots organisations, be part of the residence committee, volunteer their time to run events for the community, just so they can get their kid into a better school in the neighbourhood. To push this further, the behaviour of us humans wanting to be rewarded for our generosity have actually helped perpetuate a phenomenon we are seeing in this world, and it is called the orphanage tourism. We have to clock a minimum of 80 hours of community service in order to graduate from university. And of course, you know, many of us, we took the opportunity to do an overseas community project during our summer holidays. You know, we would travel to a developing country, build some schools or paint some walls of the orphanage and probably maybe perhaps squeeze in some time to do touristy things, you know, what I'm talking about. So to put it bluntly, we are being rewarded for doing good. Or rather, the school is obligating us to do good. But the sad truth is that no one tells us is that it actually helps to perpetuate some of the problems faced by the developing countries. So in 2018, Guardian published an article titled The Business of Voluntarism, Do Western Do-Gooders Actually Do Harm? And the short answer is yes. In the article, it highlights how orphanage tourism is a vicious cycle that perpetuates poverty. Basically, volunteers from wealthy countries pay thousands of dollars to spend their holidays helping out in an orphanage. On surface, yes, it can look like a noble thing, but truth is, it is actually supporting a system that breaks up family. 
In Aceh, Indonesia, after the 2004 tsunami, hundreds of orphanages were opened. And a study found that more than 97% of the children in there were brought by their families so that they could get an education. In fact, very few of the children had been affected by the tsunami at all. Another non-profit organization, Save the Children, looked at orphanages in Sri Lanka in 2005 and found that 92% of children had a living parent. And in a survey done by UNICEF in Liberia in 2006, it found that 98% of children living in orphanages were not orphans. Wow. You see, our desire to be rewarded, whether it's by having the poor of you indebted to us or clocking our CIP hours, it's actually creating a system of harm. And the solution is we, as human beings, need to learn to give freely without expecting some sort of payback or benefit. Because this attitude of being calculative doesn't just corrupt our motives, it actually corrupts the idea for doing good that we create. You see, there's a difference between counting the cost and being calculative, right? It's important to count the cost when you want to give your time or money to doing good, to create solutions that are efficacious. By that, I mean doing good that is both effective and empowers all. You don't want to commit to something that you cannot afford or something that is totally not effective at all. That is just practical wisdom and being responsible. But after you are done counting the cost, friend, don't keep track of it or expect a payback because then it becomes about us again. How can I benefit from giving instead of how can I truly give to the other person so that it makes a real difference? The most beautiful gifts in life are those given for free with no strings attached. Proverbs 28:22 CB, it says, Don't eat food with stingy people. Don't long for their delicacies because they are like a hare in the throat. Imagine that. They say to you, eat and drink, but they don't mean it. You see, at the core of every calculative person is self-interest. They might give you a gift, but it is given so grudgingly that might as well, friend, it's okay, I don't need your gift. You see, no one likes to be friends with people whom you constantly feel obligated to. Instead, we should live a life of reciprocity and gratitude. And relationships like that are beautiful. So turn to your neighbour and say, don't be a calculative person. And our last point, doing good is transformative when it's motivated by love. Matthew 6, 4, it says, Your father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. Have you ever wondered what is this reward Jesus is talking about? 
if it's not recognition, if it's not payback, then what is it? Some people say the reward is in heaven or our afterlife, but I think that our reward can also be in this present moment. We humans are inherently selfish people. Come on, let's just admit it, all right? <laughs> Doing good without expecting any reward goes against our human instinct to get ahead of others, to conquer or dominate. So then, why are some of us still motivated to do good when there seems to be no reward at all or personal gains in this capitalist world that we live in? The answer is profoundly simple. Because love motivates us to do good. Human beings, we are made to be loved and to love. Without love, we are destructive, selfish, violent to the people around us. But when we are loved and motivated by love to do good, we can transform not just ourselves, but the community around us as well. That is why for me, Jesus is so compelling. The fact that our God is known for His perfect love, that is just mind-blowing. It is because of His love for us that we have the capacity to give to others the same love. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15. It says, for the love of Christ controls and compels us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that all those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for their sake. God's love is compelling enough to override our human instinct to be self-interested. God's love is so strong and powerful that it can transform us to love others and to ultimately live a life of selflessness. So one last story I want to share is about this man and his name is called Maximilian Kobe. So he was a Franciscan priest and he was known for his leadership, his skill as a writer, and his passionate devotion to God. So during World War II, he was captured as a prisoner at a German concentration camp. And that was when he chose to save the life of another inmate by offering his own. So what happened was during summer, one of the prisoners in the camp had escaped. And because the officials couldn't find the escapee, they decided to choose 10 other prisoners to punish. And among them was this man named Francis. So when Francis learned what was about to happen to him, he began to cry out in pain and despair that I have a wife, I have children, I want to see them again. And he didn't want to die. And at that point, Kobe, he stepped out and declared that he wanted to sacrifice himself for the prisoner because he had no wife nor children. 
The commander in charge asked Kobe what was his profession, and he responded that he was a Catholic priest. Stories goes on to show that Kobe survived without food or water for two weeks in the underground prison cell. And eventually, he was the last of the 10 prisoners to die, executed by an injection. So when I, I read this story, you know, it really inspires me. But it also really makes me question, what could it be that will motivate a person to sacrifice his own life for another stranger? Someone he doesn't know at all. And the answer can only be love. Love was what transformed the man he saved and the community who lives to tell his story. So friend, when we move beyond our self-interest to give to others, yes, I know, we can feel like a zero-sum game. But I want to assure you that it is not a case from God's vantage point of love. What human count as loss, in God's eyes, it is a gain. So I want to end off with one last analogy. So you see, when we humans, when we give out of self-interest, it ends in a circle loop. Because it's all about us, our family, our friends, our community, Right? But genuine giving is transformative. It is like two circles coming together to form an endless loop, like an infinite sign. And do you know what is even more powerful? It is when God is in the picture. Because our relationship with God shapes the way we love one another. And it is only God's unconditional love that will enable us to love others in a greater measure. So friends, I want to encourage you today. You know, we human beings, we are meant to be in an endless loop, not in a silo circle where we constantly fight or step on each other for personal gains. We are all meant to be part of an endless loop where we are able to give and receive love freely. So doing good goes beyond feeling good. It shouldn't be calculative and it's transformative when motivated by love. Amen.